Do you do you watch The Bachelorette? No, I don't. Okay, well, <laughs> you should. Okay. Um, <laughs> Welcome to this installment of Artist of Camberville. I'm here today with the host of The Lonely Palette, Tamar Avishai. Um, Tamar, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You can find The Lonely Palette basically everywhere you get podcasts. I mean, just, you know, pick a place and you're there. (laughs) Um, So Tamar, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started with this. I uh, I finished a master's degree in art history in 2008, and that is when I had a total, you know, reckoning as to whether or not I wanted to keep going in art history. And I had put it away for a while, and the economy tanked, and I started working at a finance firm, and I was teaching a lot. I was still teaching art history. I was really keeping my toe in it and loving the teaching part and having a really good relationship with my students and you know but but the life of an adjunct is no life <laughs> at yeah. all um, and I was still doing that uh, alongside my day job and in 2011 I met a whole bunch of public radio people um, I was introduced to them by a dear friend of mine who actually I mean talk about going straight to the top I mean she worked for this American life and so oh, wow. I was able to go to like a party <laughs> with wow. them and but it was still like before serial it was still you know you could like hang out with Sarah Koenig and no one you know no one would recognize her she yeah. was just one of the you know wonderful producers in still a very niche world so I realized that I felt so comfortable it was like everything that I had felt maybe not quite like art history and the academic world was really I don't know, like it wasn't kind of tapping into what about the subject I loved. I wasn't really a researcher. I I didn't like going really, really deep. I liked making a lot of broader connections and a lot of kind of storytelling. Like I didn't Mm. realize that that was the word, but it was, you know, explaining to somebody why a movement matters and why this artist matters within that movement. And that's actually quite a bit of storytelling and yeah. you know, kind of turning it into a really good narrative that people can follow. It just got me thinking. I was like, like maybe storytelling is the right angle here, not specifically art history, but any kind of storytelling. And I felt so connected to public radio people. And I just thought like, okay, well maybe, maybe this is the job I wanna do. And two things happened. One is I started giving these very short talks at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston that ultimately the podcast has kind of become. These like short, hooky, one painting at a time. This is why this matters. Here's a little thesis to kind of get you started. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been doing that since around the same time, 2011, 2012. And then the podcasting world blew up. And it actually got very hard to get a job in it. And so I had to go it alone just to see what would happen. And ultimately, I wanted to work for a bigger show. And I started The Lonely Palette as a way of saying, okay, well, I have experience. Like, I know art history. I have experience putting together these short little talks. I need practice editing audio and interviewing people. Mm -hmm. So let's make this experimental show that no one's going to listen to and then I'll get the practice and I'll get a real job. 
Mm-hmm. And people started listening. <laughs> like it was, it was really, it was an incredibly lucky break to get into podcasting when I did. Mm-hmm. Um, because even just 2016 was a really different landscape than 2019 is now. Well, I want to actually play a clip of your show, The Lonely Palette, and I'm so excited because the last three or four interviews I've done have been with visual artists, Mm. and so I'm like, do you want to sort of describe your work, which is always, (laughs) you know, radio's not great, but you were on the radio, so this is fantastic. This is an episode you did a while back on Rothko, and so we're just going to play a little bit of it. And this profound spiritual use of color makes it very difficult to describe a Rothko painting without getting into poetic or associative terms. There's not that much to just describe. We can look at number one from 1961 and put it plainly. It's rectangles of greenish black and purple and red. But it's not just that. People say the most beautiful things about a Rothko. It's what came before God separated light and dark in the opening lines of Genesis. It's being a kid and gently pushing your fingers against your closed eyelids to watch the colors swirl and churn, not knowing what's going to come next. It's, as the songwriter Dar Williams put it, a blue that speaks so full it's like a beauty one can barely stand. It's a green like the peace in your heart sometimes. It's the luminescent light behind the horizon before the sun rises. It's the depth of black when your eye adjusts to darkness. That's so beautiful. Thank you. I think um, one thing that I really appreciate about your podcast is, especially being a mom of two young children who... I'm working several side hustles, right? Mm. I'm constantly going. And the one thing when I go into a space and I'm definitely, um, definitely did this the last art museum I went to into, my first instinct is to move through it and consume it mm-hmm. and to be like, okay, I did that now on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's very, very difficult when you're being pulled in so many directions to be very present. Mm-hmm. And your your podcast, the way that you talk about paintings is very meditative. It's like it's it's like a breath. And it really sort of reminds me, and I'm sure it reminds a lot of other people, to just slow down. Hmm. And there's so much of my life right now that is sort of getting through. And that's just kind of where I'm at and it's okay. Mm-hmm. But it helps me it helps remind me that when this the stressful part of this period of my life is done like there's still that person that I was before it started who can slow down yeah and just sit in front of a Rothko painting (laughs) and like and just experience it and feel it which is not something I feel like I have space in my life for right now but that's also at the core of who I am. So it's really a wonderful experience to to listen to it and just sort of to feel kind of that breath in your voice and your writing kind of move through. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, no, it's, it's interesting, this idea of being really present in front of an artwork, because not only is that something that people are really scared to do, and they find really intimidating, and they, they're, they're really scared that they're just going to do it wrong, so they don't even try. You know, like somehow art is, you know, a sport that they haven't learned yet. And like Rothko especially is like, you know, varsity. Mm -hmm. And as an art historian, you also lose that ability to really sit with an object. At least I did. I found that like the process of academicizing it meant that you don't give yourself over to it with a kind of wide open it's like you're on the flip side it's like you're too much of an expert quote unquote to be able to really kind of sit with it and just let let it wash over you and like really feel your own responses to it because you're too busy historicizing it contextualizing it kind of putting it in its box do you think sort of thinking about and feeling the emotion or the reaction is seen as like uneducated almost yeah I do I think that I mean I I don't think that's true but I do think Mm -hmm. that that's a fear so speaking of Dar Williams actually so I've actually been going to a songwriting retreat that she's led for the last seven years and she's actually become a really good friend of mine which is I know (laughs) I still feel that way (laughs) and um which is why it's like she actually pops up in a lot of these episodes (laughs) But uh, that song that I quoted of hers, it's called Mark Rothko song. And I, I learned, you know, I learned the words 20 years ago and then, you know, actually got to really bounce off of her, like, you know, how she felt writing that song. And like, I know exactly the Rothko that she was looking at in the Harvard Art Museum. That's cool. But anyway, she uh, says one thing in her retreat about songwriting, which I think is really, really profound which is that a song can mean, you know, the the writer writes the song, puts it out there, and then it is just kind of like ready for the picking, you know? I mean, people then will hear it, they'll digest it in their own way, they'll have the lyrics mean something really specific to them, it'll speak to a really specific time that they heard the song, mm-hmm. and that the songwriter just has to deal, you know, like, you've made this thing, it's it's now a product, it's out there, and you can't control how people experience it. And so when she's teaching songwriting, she says, look, a, a lyric can absolutely mean more than one thing. But it can't mean more than five things, yeah. <laughs> you know, that it's mm-hmm. like if if it really means more than five things, you haven't written it to actually mean that first thing that it meant to you. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when you actually look at at art, an art historian is willing to stand with somebody and let let it mean four other things to that person besides that original artist's intent, you know, that we know, like, as if we know, but, (laughs) you know, that we like to think we know. Mm -hmm. And it can mean more than one thing, but it can't mean everything. And so if somebody walks up to something and just takes, I, I hate to say, like, the wrong thing out of it, but it's like, there is a way that you can experience something without actually knowing what the artist meant. It can remind you of something. There can be a lot of baggage attached, you know, and and it will 
center you in that space and time that, you know, it can be really meaningful to you. But I do think that it's really worth learning what the artist also intended. Yeah. And that kind of finding that relationship between the two is really important. And I think that it's one thing to to go up to a painting fresh, not know what the artist meant, let it mean something to you, but then also do a little bit of digging and find that kind of create that relationship between your own experience and the artist's experience. And I think if people don't do that, that can feel a little naive. You know, it mm. can feel a little bit like, like this is what art historians are always pushing back against. It's like, how can you be an art historian? Doesn't art mean whatever I want it to mean? And it's like, well, no, actually. <laughs> yeah. Like, yes, I guess, you yeah. know, but, you know, if that brings you closer to it, sure. But, you but know, But there's it's, all these layers that can yeah. influence and deepen your experience yeah. with it if you know about them yeah, yeah and especially like mark rothko who it's it's abstraction you walk up to it and you do kind of just sink into those layers and have your own meditative experience that's actually something that was really important to him was to create a space for you as the viewer but if you you know if you don't still give him a little bit of credit for creating that space I think the opposite actually happens. I don't think that it's somebody walking up to it and saying, oh my God, this is so for me and I never have to worry about the person who made it. They resist it. Like that's, that's a real difference from songwriting. It's not mm. like a piece of music that, you know, kind of you can bop along to. I yeah. mean, you have to work a little bit to walk up to a Rothko and like get something out of it. And I think that little piece of work is really scary to people. And so they'll just say, like, Rothko. I mean, yeah. I can yeah. do that. Yeah. It's just some <laughs> rectangles. Like. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the that piece of it can be really, really tricky, like, as an art historian, thinking as a, as a visitor and finding that balance. Yeah. I think one of the nice things is, is when I first heard about your podcast and I was listening, I was really kind of to be honest, expecting more of a stylized lecture or where you would dive into the author's past and sort of talk about their experience or their life and, and how it r related to the, the painting, which you definitely do, but you, you still talk about that experience of like somebody standing in front of this painting and what it feels like to them in that experience. But I, I think what is really nice about your podcast is it's it really gives a very large dose of permission to the hmm. person listening to it, which as somebody who doesn't have that background, I definitely sometimes go in front of a painting and I just, it almost feels like there's 50 people behind me and all they're doing is talking about what I don't know <laughs> you know and it's like you have to sort of block them out to yeah. enjoy it but it's hard because you're not just looking at them you're also looking at all of you're trying to block out all these other insecurities that you don't have that that you have well um, they're all faking it anyway so. <laughs> there you go <laughs> but I think it's nice because you know sometimes I listen to other podcasts and stuff and it just seems very focused on the host and what the host knows and sort mm -hmm. of educating guests, which is not a bad thing. I think that there's a space for that. But I think 
what is nice, what was surprising when I listened to yours is that you give so much time and energy to other people's perspectives and other people's reaction to the painting, like before you even get into your mm-hmm. bit. Thank you. I mean, you know, the the difference there, I feel like, is because I wanted to be a radio producer. I didn't <laughs> want to be an art historian anymore. And I think that makes a huge difference because I went into this right away thinking, how do I be a radio producer? How do I be a storyteller? Mm. How do I think like a listener? And what would I have wanted to hear? Every now and then I'll get an email from an art historian saying, I want to do what you do. Like, I want to make a podcast about art history. How, you know, where do I start? Mm. And, you know, it's like, uh, (laughs) well, you don't email your competition. Yeah. (laughs) But um, what I've actually realized is that you can't approach it like an art historian. Otherwise, it sounds like a lecture or an audio guide or, you know, art historians. You know, you put so much energy into learning something so deeply, especially because the people who come to me are usually PhD students. And I never even got a PhD. Like, I just have a master's, but I know how deep you go. And that's very hard, you know, unless you've put a lot of energy into teaching. You know, it's really, really hard to pull yourself back enough to say, what does my listener really need to get out of this? And what is the story I want to tell about this movement or about this painting? And so, you know, I don't really have much to say other than stop thinking the way you've been taught to think. (laughs) So, yeah, it's not great advice, but I think it would be hard to have. And, and definitely thinking of myself when I was younger, like not just to say every piece of information mm-hmm. that I know about something. And if um, I really think about it, it was probably because it was just more about me. It was more about like showing the world what I knew. Yeah. Where now I'm older and I'm just way more interested in other people's stories and what other people know, which is I think hard when you're younger and maybe all you've gone through is school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the definition of a journalist, is, is caring about accurately portraying other people's stories in a way that other, you know, that other people still want to digest them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm not a proper journalist. I've never gone to school for this, but it's definitely what I love about this process. What do you hope that your listeners are sort of taking away from each episode? I want broadly everybody to know that art history is a really good story. You know, take away the whole intimidation factor of walking into a museum and being told to like, shush, and that you're looking at something that some people know the answer to this. You're not one of them yet. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so this is like a locked box. And just to recognize that art, like... This is how I feel about it, that art is this incredible byproduct of being human. And humanness is something that we can all relate to. We don't all tap into it as deeply as others. Again, I watch a lot of The Bachelorette. Like, you know, it's (laughs) like there are definitely more people than not out in the world who who don't actually put a, a ton of energy into tapping into that more kind of poignant sense of humanness and how we connect to each other. But 
these artists surely did. And mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see what happens when they connected with each other and they want to connect with their viewers. And in that way, this is not scary stuff. This is actually just really, really human stuff that anybody can relate to. And I want art history to feel as much of a feel like as much of a story as history is. And history is not as scary somehow as art history is. You're right. I never thought about that. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, you know, this was this is evidence, this is an imprint of a life lived, of a time that has passed. And there's something really, really valuable about it. And, you know, or it can really just be really beautiful. And artists are able to do these incredible aesthetic things that do really cool stuff to your eye, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that the, the much deeper, darker stuff has a real history to it and that the history is fascinating and it's a really good story. Well, definitely um, talking to you and, and listening to your series has made me appreciate how I've been doing museums wrong. Oh, oh no. Because <laughs> like I said, I've been kind of going in and just making sure that I go to everything and mm -hmm. then I leave. And really, and it's, and so therefore, it, when I go to, um, you, you know, the MFA, uh, it's intimidating because I'm like, well, there's no way I can consume all of this. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to start. But really, it's about, it'd be way more effective use of my time if I do find a couple and have that experience that really is going to influence me more than just sort of glancing by a hundred paintings mm -hmm. in a trip. So um, not something I had really realized that I was doing and approached it, but I was like, yeah, that's totally what I'm doing. Well, hopefully it makes your experience of going to museums better. Like I wouldn't say it's a, it's a like right, wrong thing, just mm. an enjoyable, not enjoyable thing. Yes. I think that's true. And I'm going to have to wait until I either have childcare or my kids are older <laughs> before I do that. Because otherwise it's going to be like, oh, don't touch it. Wait, no, no, go, don't rub that. Yeah. But, you know, that's for another time. So you've already talked about this a little bit, but what experience did you have in radio or podcasting before you started? <laughs> um, a weekend course. <laughs> okay. Well, that's something. <laughs> um, I, uh, I, I literally spent a weekend... Um, learning how to use the audio editing software. And I just put together this little kit and went to the museum um, when I was giving these spotlight talks and just practiced interviewing people, you know, pulling them aside and saying, you know, what do you see when you look at this? Like, how would you describe it? I don't know what I'm doing with this. I'm not a professional. Don't worry. Like, this isn't going to end up anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, um, Ooh, that was awkward when it did end up somewhere, right? <laughs> well, it didn't for a long time. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I got their permission to use yeah. their voice, which is all you need, but you know, it's, there's a, there's a funny balance in between saying that, you know, asking people if you can interview them and saying no one is ever going to hear this, then everyone wants to do it. There's interviewing people saying, I have a, a professional, successful podcast, you know, and they're like, oh, I want to be on it. Mm -hmm. Anywhere in between that and people are like, no, thank you. <laughs> and they walk away. So I, I had a lot of that middle part. I'm a little bit more on the on the successful part, which is nice. But yeah, it is it is hard to get people to talk to you. I mean, everything that you hear on the podcast, you don't hear the 
(laughs) five out of 10 people who have said no thank you and Mm. walk away. Has anyone like recognized your voice or something? Like when you've come up to them to ask or have our listeners to the Uh, podcast? A couple times. Yeah? Yeah. Does that feel great? That's been pretty cool. (laughs) I've had people come to my spotlight talks because they know the podcast. Oh, that's amazing. And that's really exciting. I mean, and it's amazing to me how excited they are. Like it feels really weird. (laughs) Like they, I don't think people realize how symbiotic that is. Like, like you have no idea how glad I am that people listen. Very cool. That was a few years ago. Um, so looking back, kind of when you were getting started or that first year when you first started getting things out, was well, there something that you would do differently if you had to do it again? Um, I was a little naive as to how much work went into it. I thought that I was, I was really... Too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought I would be able to get out an episode every other week. Mm-hmm. And in the course of the show so far i mean so i'm i'm working on episode 40 tomorrow that's getting released tomorrow and you know over the course of 41 episodes plus the intro app i've discovered that i actually like going a lot deeper and that the not necessarily the quality of the writing but the depth has become a lot more sophisticated and so what once was an episode that might be one and a half to two pages of single spaced writing. Like that's mm-hmm. how I, that's how I measure it. <laughs> you know, like by the pound. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, this most recent one was five pages single okay. space. Wow. And so that takes a lot longer to write. And that means that you're creating an argument that isn't necessarily more complex, but it definitely is more like multi-armed. Um, so with my Christian Boltanski episode, like episode two, you know, I was kind of saying one thing and for Frida Kahlo that's coming out tomorrow, I'm saying a lot of things (laughs) and tying them all up. So there's definitely that, that complexity there, Mm -hmm. but you know, looking back on it, I don't feel like I gave Christian Boltanski short shrift, but it was really just focusing on that one piece with a little bit of historical background. And here it's like, you can't talk about Frida Kahlo without really getting into the weeds. Otherwise, you know, people will come after me with pitchforks. So (laughs) (laughs) like, but even so, it's like, I wanted to, I've been challenging myself. So when I did the episode on the Ece Homo restoration, quote unquote, um, you know, Mm -hmm. the the monkey Christ. Uh, and then also when I did the one about uh, Matisse and Stravinsky and their relationship, okay. which I'd actually adapted from a paper that I wrote for grad school, like these are complicated arguments and they go through a lot of shape shifting to get from, from the beginning to the end. And you have to be aware of all of that and you have to be able to, you know, not let it get too out of bounds, you know, and, and that writing takes a really long time and you just can't force it. You can't write it all in one night. You know, you have to write a little every day, go back to it, make sure that it's still clean. It's still making sense. It doesn't sound too academic. I find that I'll write a script and then spend a few more days after that, like, like calming it down a little bit (laughs) and like shortening my sentences and adding a lot more, you know, and da da da, but da da da. So da da da, you know, things that you wouldn't, Yeah, yeah, like adapting it for radio. Mm-hmm. Oh, tell me about Hub and Spoke. 
Ooh, speaking of people not paying me to advertise for them. Well, so Hub and Spoke, it's it's going through a real transitional phase right now, um, which is really exciting. So, so I launched the Lonely Palette in uh, May of 2016, and I got a really nice email when I put it out. There's this Boston radio community that's called the Sonic Soiree Listserv, okay. and you you get on it somehow. And I had you know, kind of swallowed hard and I sent it to that group and it's all of these Boston radio producers. So, and I got the nicest email back from this guy, Wade, and, uh, his name is Wade Roush and he was putting together his first few episodes of his podcast soonish. And we were just kind of keeping up with each other's shows and really encouraging each other. And so this takes us to like fall, spring, no summer, uh, 2017. And he said, you know, we should make a collective, you know, like what, what would it hurt to say that we, you know, we're not necessarily, we're still independent. You know, we haven't been asked to join Radiotopia or Gimlet or, yeah. you know, these, these really, um, prestigious production companies, but you know, we're good. Like, why not act like we're part of one? Mm-hmm. And let's find another show or two and be a collective and just really support each other and help each other, edit each other, and, and like, have a name and make it very clear, like, you know, that, that the appearance of success is going to be our success. Yeah. Because when, you know, when a list comes out that you know, says that your episode or your podcast is one of the best of whatever, when it says that you're independent versus when you say you're coming from WNYC, yeah, you know, more and more being independent, you know, it's like, ask me about my blog. (laughs) And so we just wanted to get rid of that label and also like make some friends and be part of something. And he came up with the name Hub and Spoke. I love it. Yeah, I do too. And we found another show who was ready to jump on board with us really quickly, Ministry of Ideas. And so the three of us, the, the three shows of us, we got branding and a website. And that was like the first thing we did. It was like, let's look legit. And little by little, we've uh, acquired three more shows. We had actually acquired three shows. One show left because they got picked up by Slate. <laughs> So that was a really, I mean, That's we, cool. you know, it was a bummer to, to yeah. lose that show, but like, <laughs> I mean, that was a real testament to the fact that we were putting out the kind of quality that we wanted to like see in the world mm-hmm. and we're, we're continuing to add and people, people talk about hub and spoke shows now, like it's a thing, you know, like, like a Radiotopia show means yeah. something, a hub and spoke show means something. And what we want it to mean is you know, a charismatic host who is guiding you through a kind of educational, mind-expanding subject with really good storytelling Um, or taking a kind of thematic subject and having that be the point of entry that you then look at a larger, you know, idea of humanity. Yeah, yeah. Tamar, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This I really, was, yeah, this was a great conversation. Yeah, I really appreciate you being here. Uh, you cannot see this, but Tamar is beautiful and 38 weeks pregnant. <laughs> <laughs>
And uh, in that order. Yes. And I'm so happy, but also a little sad that like you haven't gone into labor here because like, that would like be during the yeah, interview. Like during I was the thinking interview. about that actually. <laughs> What that, that would, would be, sound like that would be pretty amazing if this episode was like I'm sorry we had to cut this short because my guest went into labor it's um, like the, that gush wasn't a pipe burst yeah. thing that was my water breaking that was my uterus you can find the lonely palette wherever you get your podcasts and if you like it leave a review it takes less than a minute and while you're at it leave a review for artists of Camberville I promise good vibes will follow you for the rest of your day <laughs>